It certainly is good to be home and to be back with you, and we have an excellent crowd here this evening, and we're grateful for that, and we're grateful that you've come to be with us and to worship God tonight. I stand before you in this format because I never thought that we would finish the questions. In fact, before I left, I thought, I wonder if I ought to get the next chapter completed, and then I thought, well, there's no way they'll finish, but they did. So I was asked to give a introductory overview of all three of these books and we're not going to go into a study of the verses uh, specifically in these three chapters but there are some historical circumstances and there are some things that were going on around the time of the apostle john and that's who we believe to write these three epistles and there were some circumstances and some things going on that are really significant when we understand the writings of the Apostle John a long time ago. And so we want to talk about these things for a little while tonight and some things that we can glean from it. First of all, the uh, general characteristic, and I realize we've already gone through one chapter of the book of 1 John, but let me just say this though, with regards to further proof that the Apostle John was the author, divinely inspired obviously by the Holy Spirit, but was the author of this epistle we find a great similarity that exists between the first epistle of John and the gospel that bears his name, and we find that those similarities are striking and those similarities are obvious. One scholar said the likeness extends to style, vocabulary, form, and content, and it is of such nature as to convince the most casual reader that both writings are from the same hand. The epistle places great emphasis on love. In fact, some even called it the epistle of love. And the word love or its derivatives occur some 51 times in this first epistle. Also, various forms of the verb to know occur in its vocabulary as well. In fact, the idea of knowing or to know seems to be a favorite term of John, possibly in refuting various theories of the Gnostics who boasted about their superior knowledge. You know, there are many things that we can look in here. There are many assurances that are found in the first epistle of John. And you know, I'll tell you something. I think it's important for you and I to realize that living the Christian life, there are assurances. We can be sure about things. We don't have to wonder whether we are saved or not. We don't have to wonder whether we are uh, walking in the truth or we are following that which is truth. We can know these things in the scriptures. And so John says in 1 John 3 and 14, he gives one assurance and this is it. We know that we have passed out of death unto life. You know, I'll tell you this, Galen has a sermon, and I know Terry's heard it because I've heard it, but Galen has a sermon on things we can know. And it's rather interesting, the points that we can actually know. When we talk about the idea of passing from death unto life, when we talk about the idea of actually being in a saved condition, I believe, as I've just mentioned a moment ago, that we can know with great assurance. Now, I'm not saying that by audacity or irreverence in any way, but we can have great assurance that if we are following the things that are outlined in God's word that have us leave death to life, 
then we can pillow our heads at night and we can thank the great God of heaven for the salvation that would await us. And if the Lord would come back that night or we would lose our life in that day, then we can have a great assurance that we have passed from death unto life. Secondly, in the third chapter, in the 19th verse, John gives another assurance. He said, we know that we are of the truth. How many times have you heard somebody ask you, how do you know if you have the truth? I had a Bible study with a young lady earlier this week when I got home from Idaho. And she asked me, she said, no, wait a minute. How do you know for certain that you have the truth? You know, we don't have to be bashful about the truth, and we don't have to wonder if we have the truth. John says we can know if we have the truth. That is an assurance. He said we know that we are walking or abiding in truth. And I'll tell you this too, folks. What's very sad is sometimes not only people in the world questioning the child of God about this very thing, about the truth, but very sadly what happens sometimes is even the child of God from time to time will question whether we have the truth. I'm reminded of a family that had a young, uh, that had a son that was, uh, oh, I guess he's probably close to 30 now. But I remember a number of years ago when I was talking to his parents, and, and they said this to me. They said, you know, he's really questioning his faith and how great that is. He's really questioning the things that we believe, thinking that that was a good thing. Well, I guarantee you they don't think that now, and he no longer stands among the faithful. If it says it in the Bible, and if it says it is truth, we need to accept it and never question it when we find the truth that is found in the Word of God. We can know that we have the truth, and we can know that we're right if we are following what the Word says. And thirdly, another assurance in, in chapter 3 and verse 24, John says, We know that he abideth in us. This first epistle is one of fellowship. And what we find is, we find that there are two conditions, and they are righteousness and love. I understand that as you finish the latter part of uh, chapter 1, you, you went over this, but I'll just read these uh, beginning in verse 7 really quickly. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It is an epistle of fellowship based upon two conditions, and they are righteousness and love. And I'll tell you this, folks. Sometimes people think that we're being harsh when we say whether we're in fellowship with someone or we might speak of someone that is not following the same pattern that we are following and we make the statement that we're not in fellowship with them, but it's quite simple. If I am walking in the light as he is in the light and Terry is walking in the light as he is in the light, then I have fellowship with the Lord and he has fellowship with the Lord and because of that, we both have fellowship one with the other. 
But say, for example, that I decide to digress from that which is right, and I go off and do anything that is not right, whatever that might be, and I do something that's going to cause myself to stop walking in the light, and Terry continues to walk in the light, he is in fellowship with the Lord, I am not, therefore we are not in fellowship with each other. That's how we know whether we're in fellowship with each other is if we are both in fellowship with the Lord. But in the fourth chapter, in the fourth verse, we find that this is an epistle of victory. The Bible says you are, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In the first chapter, we have the way to victory is pointed out. In the second chapter, we find declared victory over the evil one. The third chapter proclaims victory over righteousness. The fourth chapter shows that we have the victory of love. And finally, in the fifth chapter, we are shown a glorious demonstration of the victory of faith. You know, the design of the epistle is like this, that we gather that in a general sense, the purpose was to supply incredible fashion the evidence essential to faith, and to encourage or inspire readers to greater activity in their service of the Lord. Now that's really the point. The point wasn't to be complacent when they were encouraged. The point was to look at that encouragement and cause us to do more. Let me ask you this. If you're working for somebody in a job, and they praise you and encourage you, and if they give you words of inspiration, does it cause you to be complacent and sit back, or does it cause you to want to do more? These things were written in a form or a fashion to cause people to want to do more for the cause of Christ and to provide assurance of God's approval upon all those that are faithful. Now, in doing all of this, we find that John, in order to accomplish these objectives, found it necessary to combat in vigorous fashion the various forms of evil that was prevailing in the world and to warn Christians of their deadly nature. For example, there were pernicious teaching regarding a, the, the person of Christ. There were those in the church that carried such notions and had apostatized from the faith. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. Notice what he says. That some of these erroneous teachings that we're going to talk about in just a moment had entered in and infiltrated inside the body of Christ. And some of the members of the body of Christ carried out such erroneous teachings that were false. And because of that, John says, they have left the faith. But very interesting. He says, they left us, but they really weren't of us. For if they were of us, they would still be with us. Now what is he talking about? Folks, have you ever heard somebody say, you never lost what you didn't have? You know, I think that happens from time to time. I think there are times when people, I really do believe though, I used to believe that every time somebody obeys the gospel and then quickly falls, 
It's because they weren't converted. I'm not convinced of that anymore. That is true. That can happen. Absolutely can happen. And we find that in the teachings and the parables of Jesus. But I also think sometimes the devil just comes in and tempts them. And they might have been converted the day that they obeyed the gospel. And they had a heart change. And they had a life change. And they had a relationship change with the Lord. But then they fell away because of the temptations of the devil. And that can happen. But I also know this too. Sometimes people get carried away with their own emotions and make decisions and it appears like they're standing with us and pretty soon they no longer are. Sometimes those folks we never had. And those folks that go off into false teachings and so on with regards to this one example, John says they came from us but they really weren't with us because if they were with us they would still be here and they wouldn't have departed. Interesting point of perspective. Now, what they were talking about is this. Some denied the deity of the Lord, while others denied his humanity. For example, the former said that Jesus was not the Christ. The latter said that Christ was not Jesus. In other words, the unbelieving Jews were among those who recognized that there was a man and his name was Jesus. He was the carpenter's son, he was Jesus of Nazareth, and he walked on this earth and probably was a very good man. Many Jews uh, regard Jesus as that, but they don't recognize his deity. They don't recognize that he is deity and that he was in heaven and that he is the Messiah and that he came down to this low ground of sin, sickness, and sorrow to be the Lamb of God. But on the other hand, there were the Gnostics, and the Gnostics questioned his humanity. You know, the word Gnostic is derived from the Greek word gnosis or gnosis, and it's where we get the word knowledge. And they were so designated because of their claims to superior knowledge. The Gnostics or Gnosticism was an admixture of paganism and corrupt Christianity. Basically, the theory is this. The theory regarded evil as an ever-present characteristic of matter, and its advocates were, therefore, unable to accept that Jesus Christ was actually in the flesh, therefore denying that deity ever lived in the flesh in this life. It goes further. Their belief was also based on the fact that they believed that it was absolutely impossible for sinless deity to occupy a material body. And because of that, they argued that the body of Jesus was not real, but simply an illusion. And that the sufferings on the cross were apparent and not actual. But this theory and its practical aspects led its devotees in the course of conduct that was essentially wicked and vile. And inasmuch as they regarded their bodies as evil, they concluded that their spirits were independent of them and thus undefiled by them. Stay with me. We're going to wrap this up and you're going to see how convenient it is to follow such teachings. They contended that once regenerated, they were pure in spirit, and so it didn't matter what the body did, since it's inherently evil anyway. 
They live lives as a result of unrestrained indulgence on the ground and on the teaching and on the basis that a jewel could come from a manure pile and be just as much of a gem as if it was in the most costly box or case that money could buy. They believed that it was inevitable that their bodies would sin and therefore they argued that, that a thorough understanding of all of these matters left them free to indulge in any course of action which they preferred. In other words, they could live any way that they wanted to. Oh, how convenient that is. First of all, it was based on this erroneous teaching that there's no possible way that Jesus Christ, the anointed ruler, deity in heaven, could have possibly come down in a fleshly body. And why is that? Because the fleshly body is inherently evil and corrupt. So how convenient was it for them? They extended such teaching into their personal life, and they said this, the spirit is going to be inherently good anyway, and the flesh is going to be inherently bad anyway. So here's the point. I'll just live any way that I want to do. I will indulge myself in every way. I will live an immoral, impure life. I will be wicked and cruel to others. I'll do whatever I want because it's really not going to matter. When the spirit is separated from the body, the spirit is still going to be pure, it's still going to be holy, it's still going to be clean. That was the doctrine that was pushed and pursued by the Gnostics. And these Gnostics were those that considered themselves as those that had greater knowledge. And therefore, members of the Lord's church, some, not all, John said the ones that really weren't with us, they followed some of these pernicious ways and they followed some of these doctrines and teachings in their life as well. Therefore, it was alleged that the Gnostics had superior knowledge which prompted them to style themselves as the Gnostics. But you know, in further proof of the reality of the Lord's fleshly body, John offers a testimony involving three of his five senses. First of all, when we go back to the Gospel of John, we all know in the very beginning part of the Gospel of John, he establishes that there was deity in the beginning. And he establishes that Jesus Christ was the deity and he was in the beginning. And the one that came here was the very same one that was deity in the beginning in heaven. When he said this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Dropping down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What did the Gospel of John point out? That's, a, that's in a separate writing than this. That deity existed in the beginning, and that was Jesus Christ called the Word. That he became flesh, and he dwelt among us, so he did live in a fleshly body here on earth. Saying all of that, notice what he says now in the first epistle. He uses or proves the testimony that Jesus Christ was in the flesh by three of the five senses. He says he heard, he had seen, 
and his hands had handled the word of life, Jesus Christ, the Lord. 1 John 1 and verses 1 through 3. And in further refutation of these wicked theories of the Gnostics, John pointed out that in this epistle that only those who do righteousness are going to be righteous. Only those that are pure are going to have hope. Only those and those that habitually sin, they're of the devil. 1 John 3, 1 through 9. Time will not permit us to go into that any further. That's the first epistle, and now I want to spend the rest of our time on the second and the third, and I'm going to look at those uh, basically together. The second and third writings of John are so closely associated, so similar in structure and form, so much alike in purpose and design that they may be best considered together. In both letters, the same general outline is followed, and much of the same phraseology occurs. The purpose for which they were written seems to be something that we do today in our teaching. Number one, to strengthen faith. Number two, to give encouragement under trials. And number three, to warn against false teachers. Second and third John, though brief, are of much value to us today because they give, uh, they give us intimate glimpses into the affairs of the early church and also revealed that, that, was not, that there was uh, not always harmonious uh, times, even in apostolic age, and that human nature in its darker forms carried over into the church and influenced the actions of men, even as they do now. They contain warnings sorely needed in our time, which should not be ignored or disregarded. We see in these writings the danger of denying Christ. We see the danger of failing in genuine love of the brethren. We see the danger of not keeping the commandments that are given in God's word. These writings supply us with a demonstration of the Christian spirit. One scholar said that the writings are brief, they're to the point, they're courteous, sympathetic, and they're true. And we certainly would do well as our letter writing to mimic the writing of the Apostle John, so said one scholar. Now the second epistle, the purpose and design, was written as a result of information which had come to the Apostle John regarding the children of a faithful sister that are addressed in it. You know, I know that there are a lot of parents here tonight. Most of the time, you don't hear about your children until they do something bad or until they do something wrong or until they're struggling a little bit. That's usually when we find or we speak of children and when we talk to parents about their children. But I think there's a great example here that he points out. He's going to recognize to this dear sister, he's going to recognize that the children that are hers are faithful and he's going to compliment her and commend her and commend them and praise them for living a faithful life for walking in truth as John puts it and he wrote to rejoice with her in this and admonish her to persist in the same manner of life and avoid the seductions of false teachers regularly coming her way you know, I'll tell you something, folks. The church 
The church has the responsibility of encouraging each other to not ever give up. Now that's not the duty or the responsibility of any agent, any organized group outside of the body of Christ, but encouraging one another to keep the fight and encouraging those that are kind of falling down from time to time and helping those that stumble here and there, that is the responsibility that we have as members of the body of Christ. Now what about teachers? Teachers need to do many things. There's more to teaching than just being a happy Christian. That is a fact, but that's part of it. Teaching people and instructing people and encouraging people to never give up and praising them when praise is due is very important. What if the only thing you ever heard as a child growing up in your house was how wrong you were, all the things you did that were bad, how you come short here and there and so on? It would be discouraging as you lived in that existence. But folks, we do need correction. Absolutely. And we need the word of God to correct us when we derail ourselves from the path of that which is right. But we also need the other also. We need a balance in our teaching. And that is to encourage those that are a little bit weak and to praise those that are doing that which is right. And do so in such a way like John did to encourage them, inspire them to do even more. I once asked Ryan and a couple of the guys that worked for me, I asked them, we were talking about various ways of coaching. And I know there are various ways, and I know the old ways of coaching was just to blister them, and, and that's just the way that it was, and, and that, that's the way I was coached. But I asked them, I said, fellas, I said, let me ask you this. What's going to make you work harder for me when I turn my back and leave? If I come in and scream at you, or if I come in and thank you for what you've done, appreciate what you've done and ask you to do more. And I think it's pretty obvious that most people will do more when they're treated like that. Now there's a difference between correcting and there are times when we need to correct. We need to correct those that are subordinate to us. We need to correct our children. We need to correct members of the body of Christ that need it too. But we need both. And we need to encourage others that are members of the body of Christ to never give up and keep the faith and do even more with their life. Third John was addressed to Gaius. This is a name that was of frequent mention in the New Testament and therefore not possible really to identify with certainty. We find that that name is found in Acts 19 and 29, Acts 20 and verse 4, Romans 16 and 23, and 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 14. Whether one of these men named Gaius or a man by this name not mentioned or referred to in the New Testament, we have no means of knowing for sure. He appears to have uh, neither been an elder nor a deacon in the congregation where he worshipped, but a man uh, uh, obviously of benevolence, financial standing, and greatly devoted to the truth. 3 John was written for three purposes. Number one, for the purpose of commending Gaius for his faithfulness, fidelity, and hospitality shown to missionaries which had come his way, and to encourage him to continue in this grace and not be deterred by the opposition which had risen. Second purpose, to rebuke Diotrephes for his arrogance, for his love of preeminence, and for his perverseness. And thirdly, to commend Demetrius, 
a faithful disciple whom Gaius is admonished to imitate. In summary, three persons are dealt with in 3 John. Gaius, dependable, a disciple of our Lord, liberal in giving, hospitable, and devoted. Diotrephes, he was a church boss, dominating, boastful, and proud. And Demetrius, commended by all, humble, kindly, and worthy. You know, these were three actual men. Much like the writings of the seven churches of Asia, Terry taught those here. Those were actual places, but they are also representative types of various states that the church can be in today. These three men were specific, real individuals. These were real cases that he's referring to. They also represent, though, representative types of various people in the body of Christ. I want to talk about one thing here, about what he says about imitating. Sometimes we think that imitating someone else is unoriginal, and imitating somebody else is not a good thing. That is not true. Imitating in itself is not wrong. Imitating someone that is good is right. And let me just say this. I believe that Satan works in a couple of ways in the body of Christ. Now let me just do this. This is as good as it gets when it comes to art when, with me. Just bear with me and I'll try to illustrate something here. Let's just say that this circle represented a congregation of the body of Christ. And let's just say, for sake of a better way of putting it, that the center in here represented the leadership of the congregation. Leadership is important. Leadership is imperative. In fact, if we don't have good and proper leadership, then the, con the congregation cannot be strong. That is a fact. But notice how the devil works. Notice how he worked on this man named Diotrephes, this church boss that loved to have the preeminence. He was vain and proud and boastful. He was arrogant and conceitful. Notice what happens. The devil got to him in the leadership. And that sometimes happens. And I am grateful. Here comes the, here comes the positive. I'm grateful we don't have it here. I'm going to tell you something, folks. We're not perfect. We are not. We are all human beings and we all make mistakes. But I've been out a little bit. I'm going to tell you something. The congregation here is strong. The congregation here has strong leaders. Are we perfect? No. Do we stumble? Yes. Do we make mistakes? Yes, we do. Do we sometimes do and say things we wish we can take back? Yes, myself included, all of us, we fall into that category. But I'll tell you something, folks. We genuinely have men that lead here that have the proper heart, the proper desire for that which is good and that which is right. And I'll tell you something. If Satan can't get to the leadership of a congregation, he cannot tear us down. But there's another place. And you know why he tells Gaius to imitate something good by this man named Demetrius? Because there are other people in a congregation too, isn't there? And let's just say, for sake of a better way to put it, on the outer fringe of the congregation. I'm only saying that because I'm talking about those that are weaker. I'm talking about those that are barely hanging on. What is something that happens when somebody's barely hanging on? What do we do sometimes? What is a, what is a, seems like a regular occurrence with those that are barely hanging on? 
what they do is they migrate toward others that are barely hanging on. Let me illustrate it this way. If you're hanging on the side of a cliff like this, and right next to you is your brother, and he's hanging too. You're in exactly the same position, or he's slightly worse off than you. And you're sitting there hanging there, and you know you have to do something. You have to let go of what you're holding on to, and you've got to grab something else, or you are going to fall, and if you fall, you're going to die. What are you going to do? Oh, why, Frank, that's obvious. That's obvious when we find that there's a strong one standing over the cliff like this and he's braced and he reaches down and gives you the opportunity to grab his hand. He's standing on firm ground, on solid ground. Who are you gonna grab? You're gonna grab his hand or you're gonna grab the other one that's barely hanging on? In the cliff, you're gonna grab the solid hand. But what we do spiritually is we grab on to the weaker one and you both fall. And that's the problem. Find somebody in the congregation that is stronger than you are, that has more knowledge than you do, and imitate them. Maybe you have a lot of knowledge. Maybe you have a lot of strength, and maybe there's nothing in this world that would derail you and live in the Christian life. That's a fact. But say you didn't have all the patience that you probably should have. Find somebody that's got that and imitate it. Seek after the people that are stronger and more knowledgeable than you are. Don't just find somebody that has the same weaknesses you do or is weaker than you are. Because like our illustration, as I pointed out, you're both going to fall. And imitate that which is good. You know, sometimes we say, well, you know, I, I'm my own man. I'm, I'm not an imitator. I'm, not, I'm just talking about the world in general. Oh, yes, you are. And it all starts when you're born. And you start imitating those that are in authority over you, and that's your parents. They're the greatest influence that you ever have. But isn't it kind of strange how all of a sudden parents, after a certain amount of time, they stop having the same clout with children that they once had. And all of a sudden, there's somebody else in the world that has more clout than your parents. They're more alluring, and it seems as though they have more wisdom and more knowledge than your parents have, and that's your friends. You will imitate your friends. You will imitate role models, athletes, and so on. We do that. That's what we do. We are imitators. Nothing wrong with that. Just imitate the good. You remember when the Bible talks about Satan as a, Terry preaches on this from time to time. When Satan is walking about like a roaring lion, seeking those that he may devour. You know, I was talking to a fellow this last week about this very thing. He pointed this out, I'll share it with you. And uh, as I've said before, I will stand on the shoulders of successful men and use whatever it is that I learn from them, and I will share it with others, absolutely, and, and I don't mind when others do it from me. But he thought something, he made a point that was rather interesting. He said, have you ever seen a, a nature show? Have you ever seen like a lion, a pack of lions, and, and when they watch them in their habitat, and when they watch them out there running around, and, and when they go after prey? He said, you ever notice who they go after? They go after the little crippled, sick 
animal that's in the pack. They don't go after the big one. In fact, I was watching one the other day when these cats, these leopards, were following different, they were starving to death. In fact, they wouldn't go after the big one until they were so starving that they had no other choice. Interesting, isn't it? And the Bible speaks of Satan as a lion that is going to devour or seeking those that he may devour. You know what he's doing, folks? He's working not only in, the, in here, and he can't get us if we won't let him, but he's also working out here. The little cripple, the weak one, the sickly one. The devil's doing exactly what lions do. So, if you're out here, look to someone that's stronger than you are and imitate them. You know, living the Christian life is something we can do. We truly can live the Christian life and be successful doing it. God has not given me something that is not possible for me to do. He has given me everything that I need in order to do it. But the question is, we have to follow his plan and get this, surround ourselves with people that are going to help me be successful in doing it. That's what we got to do. And just about the time when we compare ourselves, I remember, I'm almost through, but I remember in high school, I remember my dad was saying, I went to a small high school. And I remember that when I was about, in the, about going into the 10th grade, I remember that with our little high school of 900 students, little tiny high school, I remember that I was comparing myself athletically against those that were uh, in that school. And you look at those people, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm stronger than they are. I'm faster than they are. And I remember that my dad used to say, no, what do you see? What do you see when you compare yourself with real athletes? Well, that just insulted me completely. And then all of a sudden, I got exposed to it. I got exposed to real athletes, athletes that went to five and six A schools. I mean some real guys. And man, I was a little tiny fish in a very big pond. You know what happened, though? You start raising the bar. You raise the standard. You quit looking at the little fella that eats Twinkies and doesn't work out. And then you start looking to the guy that's really training, and you look at the real athlete, and you follow him, and you get better than you ever would have been. That's the point. You get better than you ever would have been. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.